Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you are listening to us. And thank you for being in another episode of Material Business by Infinity Growth. My name is Monica Hernandez, your host, and I'm very excited today because I have Teresa with us and she is awesome and she accepted to come to the podcast and I am very, very grateful. So Teresa, I love this bio, by the way. Teresa is on a mission to turn her dad's old patch into her daughter's energy garden. How awesome is that introduction? It's the perfect pitch, right? This has driven her contribution to shaping the global energy garden, helping to plant and nurture the molecules, electrons, technologies, policies, and workforce that will drive our energy transition. Teresa believes in thinking big, having fun, and the intersection of creativity and technology will be the ultimate transformational force in our society. It's really powerful what you're saying here. This mission informed in, by her engineering education and diverse work experiences from the corporate relations to running a gas plant, leading a maintenance crew, along with chicken nature and a love of drawing has driven her to create a YouTube channel where colleagues of YouTube, <laughs> where she animates a variety of industry relevant topics. She's been published numerous times at The Globe and Mail, typically from work, in, from work inspired by her three kids and husband. She's always seeking to connect and communicate around energy. Thank you for being here, Therese. Thank you for having me, Monica. So let's just dive into it. That introduction, that bio was awesome. And you know, a lot of people is like, when they ask people to introduce themselves, they're like, oh, hi, I am Monica Hernandez and I am an engineer and I do this. But this one really stroked my mind. And, and when I heard you the first time saying it, it is really powerful. So tell us about that desire to change your dad's old ways to your future for your kids absolutely so i so when i say my dad's oil patch it's a little bit of a narrowing so my my mom's also an engineer um so when i talk about my dad's oil patch my mom was there too but it wasn't her oil patch to be very clear and i grew up with both of my parents being really proud of the work that they did really uh, excited by what they did and they often talked about their work in a way that was meaningful and it fulfilled, you know, their own interests and desires. They were learning. They didn't really complain about their work a lot. I mean, okay, everybody complains about their work sometimes, but it was less common. And I think when I went into the workforce, I went in a little bit naively because I had grown up with such strong role models who represented the workforce in such a, a exciting way. And I got my engineering degree because both my parents are engineers, both my siblings are engineers. It was like a genetic requirement that I would go into engineering. And I was good at math and science. So I thought, yeah, why not? It seems like a reasonable thing to do. Um, but when I went into the workforce, I encountered less of what my mom had been through, but not none of it. And some of that early stage, a little bit of the marginalization, some of the like not really being heard the way that I was used to being heard in some of the classroom-based settings, um, I think really surprised me. And as I went through my kind of formative years in the oil patch, 
I really took a look around and said, wait a minute, this isn't, this doesn't feel like as good as it should be. It doesn't feel like the workplace that's going to deliver the change that we need. Um, and as I went through my career, you know, really believing that energy transition is an imperative for all of us to participate in, and also believing that that doesn't mean that we get rid of liquid hydrocarbon fuels or that we don't use fossil fuels in a way that's consistent with what they're best at, whether it's long distance transport or petrochemical uh, production of chemicals. There are so many different elements that need to fit together. And I really started thinking about my own career as being kind of that bridge from my dad's oil patch to what I believe will be my daughter's energy garden. And I use the term dad and daughter knowing that it's a bit provocative because I think it symbolizes the shift that the workforce will bring, not just the technology. And it's a confluence of all those things to actually drive us into that future. So, so what's informed that mission? It's really been kind of an evolution of where I grew up, the early career experiences I have, um, and my own desire to contribute in that space and to make change that really matters um, for our energy systems, especially in Canada. That's amazing. And absolutely, it is provocative, but it's also very uh, feeling centered. So you can really feel it when you hear you saying it is like, yeah, I want to transition from that to that, not only in technology, but bringing diversity and bringing new ideas and then thinking in a different way of things that we have done certain way for many, many years. So, yeah, so go ahead. Well, I was going to, just a side note too, I think that the diversity and seeing different people lead is so important. Like I used to watch my mom paint her nails and grab her hard hat, and that was super normal. It never occurred to me that you couldn't be feminine and also work on a site or be a mom and be a career woman. And so because I never had a duality, there's never friction between those ideas. And I think for my daughter, that'll be even more true. So that kind of leading by example really develops a different approach to work. Absolutely. The other day I was in a, in a conference and then they said something like, you cannot become what you don't see. So making those spaces and showing people that is is possible and very important. And I, I, I think probably six or seven of the, the people that have come to the podcast has said that their influence at home, their influence in their environment at school. And they had that someone that made this life change for them. Uh, and then it becomes normal, like you said. It was normal that for a woman to take decisions, to lead, to work, to go to site. Like, I, I didn't think it was abnormal. So it is important that we show that this is something that we can all dream of and then we can achieve and we can excel at it. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those changes or maybe not change, but challenges, maybe it's a better word, that you've seen or you've encountered when you were climbing the ladder? Because we know a lot of girls go into, not as many as we want, but a lot of girls get educated in STEM. Less girls get into the workforce and even less get the opportunity to climb the, the ladder. And then when we are at that reproductive stage and then we want kids and then we have them, it drops dramatically. So what is 
some of those examples that you can think of, yeah, this this was one of the challenges that I can think of that happened. Yeah, so when I started, so I, I graduated in chemical engineering and I went to work for Shell right out, right out the gates. And when I was young and learning and not very threatening, I actually never encountered any particular issues. I felt like I was being progressed with my peer group, that I was being listened to. Um, and things started to get more challenging when I got a little bit later in career. So like, let's say about year five, I was trying to find a job that allowed me to be in the same city as my husband. So we had done long distance through university and, and in early career, you're often moved between different site jobs for some of these big producers. Um, and I had done a couple site jobs and I was like, okay, well, I want to be back in Calgary. And so they, they kind of looked at me and they said, well, no, you're, you're going to do projects. And so you're never going to be able to have a stable city. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, who are these people's relationships with that they can just ignore their spouses or partner's career at their own and do whatever they're assigned to do? Like that seems absolutely crazy to me. And I've watched my parents make concessions for each other's career throughout, throughout their kind of relationship. Um, and thank God I had my parents' advice to be like, you know, Teresa, the company's always going to tell you to do what's best for them. You do what's best for you. Um, and so I moved into a, a commercial role at that point just to have some city stability so my husband's career could could grow. Um, and that was probably my first challenge. And it has been a challenge throughout my kind of progression in career that I don't have a trailing spouse. I don't have somebody who um, I, or I do have somebody in my life who has a very uh, concrete idea of how they want to contribute. And my husband's a nurse. So you want to talk about non-traditional career paths. Um, we have great conversations about sexism. I'm, I'm constantly getting educated on my sexism. But uh, it, it really helped give me the clarity to look at his career path as being as important as mine, um, as well as talking to my parents who, who made it really clear, like, companies will tell you anything they need to tell you you do what's good for you. So that, that helped give me the clarity to make some of those early decisions and some of the early challenge. And then later on, I became a lot less, I became a lot more threatening as I became a lot more senior. So, and I think a lot of minority groups see this and it's probably true for majority people as well. When I started going into positions of power, what I had been doing before in order to be, have my ideas more easily accepted was I'd been kind of doing the whole discounting my own opinion. So this might be a crazy idea, but, or, you know, just a suggestion, you don't have to listen to this, but what about X, Y, Z? When I started getting into more management style positions, that same um, technique that had made my ideas easier for a group to accept became, it, it came across as a lack of confidence. And my boss at the time, thank God for him, he was a huge ally. He sat me down and he's like, Teresa, stop it you know your ideas aren't stupid. So stop saying this might be a stupid idea because it makes you look it makes you look unconfident and you know damn well that's not a stupid idea. So his kind of nudge on that behavior that was no longer serving me was really helpful. Um, and then I personally believe that it is so important to get women or other minority groups into decision authority positions because when I finally had budget accountability and line of business and PL, I was able to go in and make these little changes that made people's lives better and a more equitable space. So things like I've put in multiple women's washrooms 
for teams that had women with no women's facilities. Forget about like all gender facilities. That's even that's even the next step, right? We need to keep getting those those things advocated for. Um, but I talked to women who changed in their cars and who felt humiliated and belittled because they didn't have a space to take off their coveralls after a dirty shift. Um, and so that kind of change comes from people who have got a different perspective and a different background looking around and making those changes. And the men, the men who had been in the positions before me weren't malintentioned. They literally didn't know. They just didn't know there weren't women's facilities. They hadn't thought to check, right? So the, I think there's huge advantages to uh, to getting to overcoming those challenges and getting to a place where those challenges fuel you <laughs> to say, I want to make those changes when I finally get the chance. That's so inspirational. And it's absolutely truth. I mean, when, when I was in the World Petroleum Congress and then I heard uh, in the same panel that you were, and there were, there were the comment about the bathrooms in uh, the offshore facilities not having a bean. And I remember me going into, you know, the, the helicopter dropping us and then going there and then going into the bathroom and there is no beans nowhere. And then you you kind of swallow it. It's like, there's no beans. Okay, I, I'll deal with it. And uh, But then it was the first time that I got face to someone else that also thought that that was weird. And then she became vocal about it. And then, of course, it is an issue. But you cannot see it unless someone else makes you see it. It's not malintention. It's not, like you said, it's not because they don't want to be good leader because they are depreciating. It's just because they're not women. They don't use tampons. They, yeah, they don't. No so <laughs> what are we expecting to, right? So it's a... Uh, that's that's one of the things that was really interesting. So you talked about the challenges. So what are some of those strategies that you, Teresa, has used throughout her career to move through that? Because we all know the challenges. We all know that we want to keep better. And that's why we are here. And I'm very appreciative of your time. But what are some of those tips? What have you, you know, used in yourself that moved you or helped you move through that uh, time? I think so some of the the low points in my career I remember so having babies uh, maybe I'll just because I think I struggled to know a woman who seamlessly moved through the period of having children um, with the kind of career support and growth that that she wanted uh, and that's Maybe I, I hope we hear from people who say, what the heck, mine was great. I had a great experience there. But I generally don't hear that. And I it wasn't true for me. Um, when I was having babies, I was no less myself. I was no less career motivated. I was no less inspired to make change. Um, but I was physically and obviously pregnant. And I was treated very differently. And I was expected to do things like take a year of mat leave and I didn't want to take a full year of mat leave and and actually coming back stigmatized me in a different way. Um, I didn't I didn't take two weeks. I took eight months. But I mean, it, you know, what what what's right for everybody is completely different and completely dependent on their situation. And I found that when I had those low points, um, probably three main things really helped. The first being journaling. So I've been a lifelong journaler, whether it's drawing. I do terrible drawings. You can see it on my YouTube channel. Um, and I also sketch and I and I write and I find that that process helps me get 
the emotion out of the situation. So I will very logically, I'm an engineer after all, <laughs> write down the situation and I'm able to pick apart the emotional response and say, okay, well, what is the logical path to solving this problem? Or what is the reason I responded so strongly to a situation? Um, or why am I not proud of how I'm feeling right now? Because I dealt with something in a way that made that was not true to my own values. And how do I adjust based on kind of an analysis of the situation? So I think journaling gave me an ability to be super, super honest in a way that I can't necessarily start with, even with my closest friends, um, and give myself some things to think about, about how I make things better. Um, and then the second one is friends, obviously. Like, And I don't mean just your friends that you might have drinks with on a Friday night. Um, a lot of my professional working women friends who I have different kinds of relationships with, depending on where they're at with their lives and their families. And getting their advice and perspective was so key because it made me feel not alone. So my mom, obviously, is an easy starting point. My sister is another person I turn to. She's a, a skilled professional engineer as well. Um, my brother, to a lesser degree, he's always, he gives me funny advice, not always the best advice. Um, and then a lot of my friends who I can who I can share my challenges with, who can talk me through what they did um, and also help me kind of generate, again, a bit of perspective on what is this issue and how do I work through it. And then finally, generating choice. And I'll give you a really specific example of this one. I know when I feel trapped that I am, I just get really antsy. I hate feeling like I don't have a choice. And so in the times when my career has not been going the way I want it to, um, feeling like I have no other option, I don't have anywhere to, to look to if I didn't like what I was doing, is just, it just, I feel like it makes me want to climb the walls. So when I, um, a little while ago, I realized that my entire network was internal to the company I was working for. And it kind of made me step back and go, oh my gosh, but what happens if me and, if if I break up with my company? Like now what? <laughs> so um, taking a look at that, I decided to do an MBA program. So I was thinking I would get a credential that made me, you know, employable externally, but I would also get to know a whole new group of people. Um, at the same time that I was about to start that program, like literally the same month, I moved my entire family overseas to Scotland for a job. So I was not able to start my MBA, um, but instead I started making videos on YouTube and being uh, more thoughtful in creating content and sharing it through LinkedIn. And I've now, you know, used that platform in a way that's built me a lot of different new external networks. Uh, and I feel like it's given me a lot of opportunity to voice my my perspective on different issues and to connect with people on things that we want to collaborate on. So that concept of kind of building out a little bit more choice space, I think is really important. And it doesn't have to be LinkedIn. It doesn't have to be an MBA, but making sure that you feel not trapped, I think is really important. Those are really good pieces of advice. And when we talk about the emotional state and then how it's almost forbidden, right? It's like, oh, here comes Monica. She's crazy. You know, yeah, the emotional girl. She's, you know, it's that time of the month. I have, I, I don't know how many times I've heard her. But it's like, and it is that stigma kind of gets into you. And sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, I'm just being, you know, overreacting or doing mm -hmm. things and then just getting some very easy practices like you have mentioned journaling 
looking at we have that capacity we have studied we do it we do projects multi-million we you know have people under us like there is a lot of things that we so having the ability to break down that emotional state and look at things like just like you said like why did I react it that way what was the root of that you know that I wanted to kill that guy so bad like it was why? Why? I wanted to punch him in the face so bad. Like, why? So, and then you might discover things that are not surfacing right away, but they're in their unconscious and then, or subconscious. And then that will make you make peace with it, heal, and then keep growing. So I think it's very powerful what you just said. I do have uh, to share on the emotional, uh, women being emotional thing. When I became a maintenance manager, I had a team of about 80 tradespeople who were working with me. Um, and I remember saying to my husband, I'm like, man, I have never had so many people crying in my office as when I had this like 97% <laughs> male team. And my husband, again, who's a nurse, he's like, Teresa, people cry. He goes, take it from me. I've worked in Emerge for a decade. People cry. Male, female, doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter. Everybody has that. And I was like, that's a perspective you don't often hear. And so especially, I thought that was really re reassuring. And yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think we see it from the women perspective. But now if I go through the male perspective, when they have that one person that inspired them to be themselves and open up, uh, they that is what they do. And it happened to me also. Uh, I even saw one of my ex-colleagues some months ago. and then. I just said to him, you look, you look sad today. And he broke up and I was like, oh my God, I broke him. Um, let's go for coffee. What did I do? <laughs> so it is, you know, it's, uh, you can feel that you can feel sometimes the need on that space mm -hmm. for open up. And then because he's so, we are so, uh, demand so strong out of them to be strong and to be as a society you can't cry you can't and I love that your husband brings that other reality is like of course when you are ill and you're like at the air at the verge of dying you cry <laughs> women yeah. men black yeah, white matter. whatever like yeah man you're having something so it is absolutely normal so it, that is a really really good perspective Perfect. So now we spoke a little bit about diversity, but you have managed several teams in your career. One of and one of the things that we keep hearing and repeating, and we have said it here every, I think in every podcast, is we need team collaboration, diversity of gender, uh, experience, age, anything. What are some of those things that you you think will make leaders better connectors having a diversity in mind you know what's really interesting and i've been thinking about this for a while now and i'm never entirely sure how to articulate it but it's what are the acceptable limits of diversity in a team um and my sister and i were talking about this we were mountain biking and uh we had a long uphill climb so we had lots of time to chat and I was saying to her, you know, in my 
in my team right now, we're having a lot of conversation about um, unacceptable behaviors. So um, my team, we work a lot with First Nations and reconciliation, and we've encountered some problematic beliefs, not within the team, but within kind of society in the areas that we operate um, and some, you know, in the community, some issues that were like, oh, how do we deal with intolerance? Um, and it made me realize I'm not willing to take on a racist mindset in my team. That I'm not okay with that. I absolutely not. You will not be welcomed here. <laughs> and so I think almost defining the edges of what are our common values and principles is where we really need to start and then figuring out what perspectives we need to inform it. So I know that probably sounds crazy, but when I think about diversity, I often think about what are the limits of diversity in terms of the value set and beliefs that we need to fundamentally align on? And then how do I get as many different perspectives who still have that fundamental shared value set in that room? And that's that comes down to different generations being in that space, different backgrounds, different ethnicity, different genders, um, all of those aspects, but arranged around a core value of, yeah, we believe we need to change to uh, kind of lower impact environmental fossil fuel usage. Uh, we need to improve the technologies and the efficiencies that we have in our systems. Um, all of those kind of aspects can, can mean that you really have a core starting point for the conversation. Because if you're if you're two fundamentally completely different worldviews with nothing to talk about, how do you actually drive any kind of outcome that's meaningful? So it's a common ground and then getting as many different informed perspectives around that as we possibly can. And that point is absolutely critical, I think, is sometimes, and it's it's just now that you mention it that I can hear it, is sometimes it is we are too far apart and there is nothing in common. So getting those two or those parties into a common ground is very, very difficult. So we need a set of values, something that is like a, a guide, some kind of road that we pave and we say, okay, take the highway and you're going to take the little road, but we're going to meet in the highway and then we'll work together and then off you go. Yeah. So we have some sort of uh, pathway to to go about. That's very, very interesting. So it seems like family is very, like you have mentioned, your your parents and your sister, your siblings and uh, your children, your husband. So it seems like you have the sense of community. And how do you think that has shaped the leader that you are today? How do you think that have that has helped you or what tools are you drawing from that to be who you are today? Um, everyone should have a group of people who love them no matter what they accomplish. And that to me is the core of family, right? It's these guys, as long as I'm who I'm supposed to be, true to myself, true to my values and being a good person, they kind of don't really care what level in the corporate ladder I get to, or if I you know, nailed that project or if it was late. Um, and I think knowing that you're loved and worthy gives a confidence and an ability to do the right thing that transcends everything else. So if, if I'm asked to do something 
or if my business starts to go into a position where I'm like, oh, I don't really want to be a part of that. I don't really have to worry about losing all my friends or all of my um, positional power within status or status because I don't want to go that way. I, I think family provides a core of worthiness and support that is beyond anything. Now, I'm lucky I say that from a position of having a family where that is true. <laughs> so I'm going to extend that to any community that you can create around yourself that loves you for who you are and doesn't really care what you accomplish is, I think, really, really important. And for, for some, that is not family, and that's completely okay. Um, but for me, that's been kind of the core of drawing on advice when, you know, the thing that's good for career Teresa and the thing that's good for life Teresa might not be the same thing. And how do I how do I merge those two worlds? Um, because I refuse to believe that it's ever a straight up dichotomy that you have to pick one or the other. Um, and how do I, how do you approach problems and how to find grounding when things are not going well? So yeah, family, family is huge for me personally. Um, and I think for, for others, that sense of community, that level of friendship and love is wherever it is, <laughs> is just such a necessary piece. Yeah, so just knowing that you're not by yourself, that you have, people have someone or yeah. many have your back. If you fall down, like there is hands to, you know, help bring you back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have, uh, whenever I do something that makes me feel icky like that I'm like oh I wish I didn't do that or how how come I'm feeling so bad about this I always check against my kind of three core values that I use to center myself um, and their courage so the belief that um, the sorry it's not the absence of fear but the knowledge that something else is more important um, humility which is proper awe before everything and everyone else uh, and connectedness so knowing that we are fundamentally all connected and if I've behaved in a way that doesn't honor those three things, then I know, I know I will feel ashamed and like I did the wrong thing. And so that's like, okay, test where you went wrong. Okay, now what do you have to do to fix it to bring it back to alignment? And that comes from family for me. And it's such a powerful thing, like having, you know, and, and I heard again this morning I, when I listened to this podcast and the guy in the podcast said, we all have, you know, for our business, we have one page uh vision and mission and what do we want to accomplish and I thought to myself and we don't really have that personally like a lot of people I've encountered a lot of people who don't really know where to go or how to go about or what do they want really what they they it fulfills their heart like what do you really love doing and sometimes that is a really hard question to answer so I think bringing those, like going back to basics, like you were saying, and then defining, I love that you have values and those are your three things, is it brings who you are and then it's, it kind of dictates your decisions or what are you willing to accept? Uh, what are you going to go about if it goes within that or not? So really, really, really powerful. So I picked your brain in, on, on the leadership space. We have a little bit of time. I'm going to ask you about the energy transition and how we fit into all that. And why is that important that we are doing that as, you know, as a country, as a world, as a, as a mom, as 
talk to us about it. Oh. So I'll talk about energy transition, energy transition, can I say now, for me, and then also where I think Canada needs to play in this space. Um, I believe, so Canada has more and higher level of regulation resource than we need. We have 17 times the amount of natural gas that we need uh, in an annual year. So we have a huge amount that we can contribute to the global stage. And uh, if you ever watch, there's a YouTube video called The Magic Washing Machine by, I think it's Hans Moser. And what's great about the video is it talks about the impact that having energy had on him and his family. So he talks about when he got a washing machine, his mom had time to read to him. When she read to him, all three of them, all I think he had three siblings, I don't remember exactly, had the chance to get an education because there was appliances that took some of the load off of running the household they all went to get a university degree and then because of that they were able to contribute ideas and change in the world and so when you look at how personal energy is on on actually creating space for us to do the things that our brains are capable of doing i think it's just amazing so i think there's a a huge social element to ensuring that there's sufficient and clean energy that's going everywhere in the world. Um, and I think that we have such a position of privilege in a lot of the developed world where it's we expect the lights to go on when I turn on the switch. We expect to have access to a dishwasher or a washing machine. Uh, we don't expect to be able to do that by hand. That would be crazy, right? Um, and so I think that there's a piece where energy transition also involves developing nations getting access to the energy that helps them do the things that I think the human brain is fundamentally supposed to be doing around creative pursuits, big thoughts, um, creating a better world for ourselves and for others. Um, and then I think when it comes to energy transition in Canada, yeah, I do agree that we need to phase out, that there is a climate crisis, we need to reduce carbon, absolutely. I think where Canada plays in that space, when we look at uh, the globally connected climate and ecosystem, local policy that doesn't reflect the globally connected nature of it doesn't move us forward. So yes, natural gas is an example, does definitely produce CO2 when it's burned. Um, however, it's half as much CO2 as coal or unmitigated coal. And you can get it from Canada in a way that has very low fugitive emissions, that has a high degree of regulation on water and uh, the different ecosystems and biology. So I really think that Canada's role in energy transition, not just LNG, but also to provide um, the technology and the thinking and the brain capacity to figure out whatever's next in that zero net zero world. So when I think of energy transition around policies, it's climate policy that drives globally lower emissions by exploiting the basic values of different countries, where I think Canada has lots of natural gas and lots of technology development and universities and brain trusts that can start to figure this out. Um, it's also around technology. So how do we get more, better technology, whether it's lower emissions on traditional hydrocarbons or wind, solar, scaled up EVs, whatever it is. Um, how do we get the people who drive that change? And they've got to be different people than the ones who created the old world because you can't fix the problems that you create. So we need to bring in those diverse thoughts to really help us get new ideas in instead of continuously rinsing in dirty dishwater. Um, 
And then I think it's really about how that whole ecosystem's fostered and comes together through great leadership from people who really want to make change more than they want to be rewarded for maintaining status quo. And that's so that that's absolutely. And we have spoken about leadership a lot, and then how the decisions we take, we are responsible not only for ourselves but for our communities and preventing incidents and mm-hmm. driving this transition and incorporating others. So definitely the the leadership takes a huge role and then I think we need to be more responsible about it. So it is definitely one of those those things. Perfect. That is really great. Time has flown so fast. We are at the end. Teresa, I want to ask you something that I'm going to pick from a podcast. It's called The Life of a CEO. I, I just listened to it this morning when I was doing my hair. And and uh, he said to it's a tradition that they leave the, the podcast uh, invitee leaves a question for the next person that is going to come to the podcast without knowing who it is or background or anything so we don't know who that's going to be what question will you ask the next person that comes into the podcast I'm going to be really annoying I'm going to say what is your role in driving the energy transition I'm going to get that and then (laughs) I'm going to send you the the clip of their answer (laughs) (laughs) finally and to close Teresa what will you say to those to the audience to those girls and boys and you know people that are listening to us and I you have given a lot of tips already like in this these 40 minutes have been so rich but what would you say to them what do you want to leave them with I think the thing the world needs most is whatever it is that is special about you so figure out what makes you weird what makes you shine and do it. Do it a lot. That's awesome. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for your time, for your passion, for accepting this invite in that weird way that I approached you and said, would you come to my podcast and just, you know, being here. It's it's with people like you that we can show younger generations that we can get there and then we can do it together, which is the most important part. And for the audience, thank you for being here and then for, you know, sharing and commenting and then liking and and all that. We we really appreciate um, having you here. So thank you, Teresa, once again. Thank you. All right. And I hope everyone has a beautiful whatever day you're in and uh, we'll see you next time.